Welcome to episode 97 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Don't be fooled by Doris Day's million dollar smile. Although she lit every room with a sunny disposition, she was not a sugary brand of post-war womanhood. Doris was fully committed to her career. She cultivated a screen image and guarded it closely for decades. Audience members might like to picture her as some kind of ideal woman in an apron, but Doris was more Hollywood than apple pie. One story shows how far removed she was from the domestic realm. During her early years in Warners, Doris's mother Alma baked Christmas fruitcakes for Doris to give to her friends in the studio. After the holidays when she hadn't heard anything or received any thank you notes, she reached out to Jerry Asher, head of publicity. Jerry asked Doris about it, and she realized that that the cakes were still in the trunk of her car. Doris looked and told Jerry the cakes looked like old men with long green beards. The fruit cakes were covered with moss. Doris Day had more important things on her mind than baked goods. On paper, Doris Day and Mae West might not seem to have anything in common. One might be tempted to argue they're on opposite sides of the spectrum if you measure them by the old slide rule about good girls and bad. But in their screen debuts, Mae and Doris share many things in common. The temperature in the room rises five degrees when they enter. Men look ham-fisted and ill-equipped to serve them, whether it be men behind a counter in a travel agency or a waiter in a nightclub who has to be told to bring a chair for a lady. Under creamy halos of satin blonde, they are sisters who shake up the room. They bring the heat, the energy, to lift dull little stories into something special. They bounce. They are armed to the teeth with sass mouth. May invites George Raft, crawl to me, baby, crawl, while Doris sings about chucking men into the sea and is so cute that you would imagine men would gladly volunteer to throw themselves over the ship's rail. From the minute she appears in Romance on the High Seas, Doris Day is sass firing on all cylinders. She hovers over a display case in a travel agency like a kid in a candy store. She dreams of adventure abroad, in between singing sets at a local nightclub. Doris plays Georgia Garrett, and just because she lacks the funds to travel doesn't mean a dame can't fantasize. 
while the clerks grumble about having to wait on penniless Georgia in front of a drugstore heiress played by top-billed Janice Page, Doris Day refuses to accept the brush-off. She asks about potential trips. The clerk suggests the canal. Doris shuts him right down with a devastating review. The canal's for schmoes. Doris wears a gray suit and crimson blouse and looks as cute as a button. The world is her oyster, even if it's just for pretend. She has great hipster slang here, like that actually fractures me. Janice Page during this scene clocks the blonde's name and where she works and turns up there later with a bargain for Georgia. The screenwriters, brother Julius and Philip Epstein, insert a little social commentary in the dialogue for this nightclub scene. The host, when they enter, tells Janice and her uncle, played by S.C. Cuddle Sakel, that they don't allow evening dress in the club. The same host later quips to Georgia that a couple of tax evaders want her to join them for a drink, meaning the rich folks. As the heiress Elvira Kent, Janice Page explains, I don't trust my husband. Doris, succinct in her hipster lingo, replies Natch. She's on the level here and in every other scene. Doris falls into a sweet deal. She can have a cruise to South America, a new wardrobe, and $1,000 cash just to pretend to be Mrs. Kent so that the real Mrs. Kent can spy on her husband. Jack Carson plays the private detective hired by Mr. Kent to spy on his wife. He falls in love with Doris, Natch. I have a huge soft spot for mistaken identity pictures. They chase the blues away. Doris nails every scene, especially when she's pretending to be sick in between bites of a chicken leg and smuggled herring under the bed uh, during an examination scene with Eric Bloor. Doris Day hits all the notes to let us know when she wants something or how she feels about it, whether it's experience, money, a fabulous wardrobe, or a stand-up guy on a boat. It's Magic, the song she sings to Jack Carson while they're on layover in Havana, received an Oscar nomination, and it's great. But for me, it doesn't hold a candle to put him in a box, tie him with a ribbon, and throw him in the deep blue sea. For that number, she's wearing a stylish white frock with nautical blue stripes. She has a row with Jack Carson, then goes to the ship's bar. She bellies up to it and declares that she'd like to get higher than a kite. The bartender reacts to this breakfast hour request, obviously. Miss Georgia Garrett tells him she doesn't drink. She'll get high her way. The band, of course, acquiesces to her desires and plays a spicy number. Doris sulks and scowls about what a false bill of goods romance is and how she'd like to toss it all into the sea. It's enchanting. The song is infectious. Milo Anderson designed the wardrobe for the picture. He got his start in pictures when he took over for none other than Coco Chanel when she bailed on Sam Goldwyn for The Greeks Had a Word for Them in 1932. Milo was only 17 at the time and enrolled in the local high school. Milo eventually left Warner's after the studio made drastic cuts in the 1950s to the wardrobe department. Milo would not suffer the slashed budgets. 
He's in top form here, especially in the everyday clothes that the ladies wear, especially like this dress Doris wears for the song, the white one with the blue stripes. And also the great suits for Janice Page and Doris that they wear before the uh, ship sails. Doris Day famously had bad luck with men. She had one stinker after another. Perhaps the one man in her life who gave more than he took was Jack Carson, her co-star for Romance on the High Seas, and also My Dream of You and It's a Great Feeling. Jack Carson was a rare good guy in a parade of wolves and vampires. In pictures, Jack always gave women the advantage and helped them to shine, and I was delighted to find that he was so good to Doris. He was the one who arranged for her to meet with the director, Michael Cortez, and when he was looking to uh, cast this picture, originally titled Romance and High Sea. And Jack also delivered the news to Doris that she got the job before her agent or anyone in the studio. Jack set her up for the part and also coached her throughout. Doris had little time to prepare for her first picture, and she's listed fourth in the credits, so this was a, a lot of pressure on her. Carson had been in show business for more than 20 years, and he'd been in pictures for 10. He was generous and didn't hold anything back. Jack taught Doris tricks for hitting her mark on the set each time without looking at the floor. He taught her how to stand and move so her face was always in a shot. Doris learned timing and delivery from Jack. He explained how to maintain an even performance so that each successive angle shot would match with the master shot. They rehearsed their scenes together after hours, so she'd always be ready when the cameras rolled. Doris asked questions, and Jack was patient. Not only did he explain stuff, but he also demonstrated the difference for her. Doris was a quick study, but the confidence she exhibits in this picture might not have been so easily won if it hadn't been for Jack Carson. They also dated during the time they worked together in the studio. Things between them really never got as serious as marriage, which is kind of a shame when you consider the dud she married after the fact. Doris and Jack look really good on screen, and you can see him falling in love with her for real. Doris claims she'd been reluctant to meet with the director, Michael Cortez, who had been with Warner since 1926. She says she was heartbroken that her second marriage to musician George Wheedler had failed. On her way to the studio, Doris recalled, nothing mattered to me except my personal life, and my personal life was a melancholy ruin. This story aligns with the Hollywood persona that Doris Day created and protected over the years. In her memoir and for interviews, Doris always argued that she only cared about being a good mother and wife and really wasn't interested in being a star. But everything she had done since she was a child was leading up to this interview, from when she loved the attention as a child for performing um, in front of adults to her career in show business first as a dancer, then a singer, and now to be a singing movie star. Doris's account of her Hollywood debut is a fairy tale that glosses over her ambition and the amount of work she put into her career. 
It sounds better to say you were reluctant, that you fell into it, rather than say it's all you ever wanted and worked really hard to get it. According to Doris, her agent, Al Levy, tried to pump her up for the meeting. Didn't she know how lucky she was? What a big opportunity she had. How important that this Michael Cortez was in the studio. In 1946, Cortez had made a deal with Jack Warner for his own production unit. Under his banner MCP, which stood for Michael Cortez Productions, he developed projects that were shot in Warner's and distributed by the studio. Cortez had received a script from the front office, a recycled number from a Jane Wyman picture released in 1940. For the role of a band singer, Cortez had originally considered casting Judy Garland, but she had been pushed too far in MGM, had a nervous breakdown, and hadn't yet recovered. Betty Hutton was pregnant at the time, and Lauren Bacall was on location with Bogey shooting a picture and unwilling to return to accept the role. When they met, the director asked Doris about her experience, expecting the usual answers. Um, from hopeful starlets when they told him about how they were understudied to Catherine Cornell or how they missed a big break on Broadway. Doris was candid. She said she had no acting experience, except for that time she played a duck in a school play when she was nine years old. Cortez saw that the agent was nervous that his client wasn't selling the director but the director liked that she was fresh-faced and windblown and lacked the usual glamour girl theatrics. Looking at her inexperience, Cortez noticed that Doris was sexy in an unsexy way or an unobvious way. He thought that her sex sneaks up on you, meaning one supposes that she didn't look like she had a Hollywood makeover. He found that Doris had a sincere quality that would go over big. During a rendition of Embraceable You, Doris began to cry. Even after she took a break, she cried when she tried again. Doris went to the bathroom to collect herself. Cortez asked Al Levy what was wrong. Al explained she was just upset over a marriage breaking up. The director waved it off as less important than a toothache. Oh, that, he said, as long as she's healthy. Cortez liked what he saw, tears and all. Doris apologized for crying. He reassured her, saying, I sometimes like girl who is not actress, is less pretend and more heart. Cortez gave her the script and told her to return for a screen test. Doris woke at five on the day of the screen test. In the studio under the hairdryer, she fell asleep. The hairdresser had to poke her awake. I've never seen this before, the stylist said. Usually she couldn't keep them in the chair. They were so keyed up and nervous before their test. After Doris was made up and dressed for the camera, she felt uneasy. She felt strange under a thick layer of makeup that felt like a mask and covered up her freckles. She thought the studio was trying to style her like another blonde, a carbon copy Betty Hutton. Doris didn't think her test was any good. She did three scenes and a couple of songs. But Doris signed with MCP in April 1947. By signing a contract directly with Cortez, Doris was at a disadvantage. 
both the studio and the independent producer shared her box office, but also what she made outside the studio. Under contract with MCP, she made $500 a week, with standard gradual increases if they picked up her option. By the terms of their agreement, she was obligated to surrender half her wages for any work on the stage or in radio. That meant when she signed a deal with Bob Hope in August 1948 for a radio show at $1,000 a week, she really only made $500. The contract also stipulated that she would not receive additional salary for loan outs to other studios. And she had to receive permission for all work outside the studio before she signed a contract. Doris's agent, Al Levy, took as much as 20% of what she made. Levy did add a clause to her contract that guaranteed featured billing in each picture she did in the same size font as topped billed stars. The only thing not included in the 50-50 split with the studio were the recording rights that she kept outright. Curtis and Warners kept their hands off her songbook. When she signed, she left behind night work and first takes in the radio station. Doris had hated singing in front of a live audience in a nightclub or in the radio because there wasn't anything like a do-over or second try. In the recording booth at Warner Brothers, Doris could do a song as many times as she liked until it was perfect, and she liked that control. In her own words, she became a lunch bucket lady. Other new members of the film colony recalled how they were starstruck or how they developed an intense focus on their studio lessons or their lavish new dressing rooms or the wardrobe they afforded. But for Doris Day, the contract meant that she had at last regular daytime hours. Doris Day had a diurnal body clock. She was hardwired to the sun. She worked in, an, in daylight and looked forward to it instead of under the twinkling lights of a nightclub. She was a lunch bucket lady at last. Once signed, studio publicity began crafting her small town girl made good persona. They issued a press release under the heading D-Day, which included a bit about when Doris was asked what color she wanted for her carpets and drapes in the dressing room, she replied she didn't need a dressing room yet because she didn't have any dresses. The studio brief also noted that the first thing Doris asked for was one of the bicycles that they kept on the lot. Doris worked 11 or 12 hours a day in the studio, plus rehearsals after hours with Jack Carson. The studio sent her to drama lessons with acting coach Sophie Rosenstein, like they did with all new contract players. Cortez intervened and told Doris that acting lessons would be a mistake. Drawing from his decades of experience, he explained to Doris that she had something rare, a star quality that defined her. Picture stars have an indelible personality that transcend their roles. Cortez said, look at Gable, Cooper, or Carol Lombard. Big stars never really change on screen. He told her, you have very strong personality. No matter what you do on screen, no matter what kind of part you play, it will always be you. What I mean is, the Doris Day will always shine through the part. This will make you big, important star. 
Although he advised Doris not to meddle with her natural looks and personality, he did browbeat Doris about her appearance. Cortez hounded Doris to lose weight. He wanted her to have hollow cheeks, he said, the looks that the film stars cultivated from the Depression. And the studio continued to slather on the makeup to cover over her freckles. In an interview decades later, Doris admitted that Cortez's comments about her weight gave her a terrible complex about her appearance. She felt like she was overweight and dowdy, unattractive compared with other picture queens. Some columnists agreed. Sheila Graham, for example, made many snide comments in her column about Doris's weight and her freckles. Doris recalled that fan letters were what helped bring her over this feeling of insecurity because the fans often said how much they loved her freckles or how much they wished they looked like her. Hedda Hopper was a fan from the beginning, from when Al Levy brought his new client in to meet her. Al and Hedda had offices in the same building. Hedda raved about Doris. She was won over by the freckles and the natural complexion without any makeup. She asked Doris why she always wore skirts and sweaters, to which Doris replied that she couldn't afford any dresses. Hedda had basically shamed Al Levy into shelling out for dresses that he had made for Doris and put on his agency's account. Like many new stars, Doris was concerned with doing well and how she looked on screen. The director told her to stay away from the daily rushes. Doris asked how would she know if she had done well, Cortez replied, I like it, and that's good enough for you. If he had a problem, she'd know about it. In her memoir, Doris stresses how thrilling it was for her when she started on Romance on the High Seas. She wrote, from the first take onward, I never had any trepidation about what I was called on to do. Movie acting came to me with with greater ease and naturalness than anything I had ever done. Often before a take, despite all the pictures he had made, Jack Carson, jittery and on edge, would show me his hands, which were wet with nervous perspiration. I never had a qualm. Water off a duck's back. Cortez would explain what he wanted in a scene. I would do it, and that would be that. Romance on the High Seas opened nationwide in July 1948. It was a big commercial hit at the box office. Even critics who thought the plot was contrived had to admit that Doris Day was a star. She started production immediately on a follow-up, the picture My Dream is Yours, which was loosely based on her own life story. In August, Doris signed a deal with Bob Hope to appear on his radio show for 1000 a week, which meant she really took home 500 She also recorded a new studio album at the same time, on top of her 11 or 12 hours a day in the studio. The grueling production schedule for stars under contract to Warner Brothers eventually took its toll on Doris. The studio response when a star was a hit at the box office was work, work, work until the star was on the brink of collapse. For example, when Joan Blondell made Smarty in 1934, she was so exhausted she couldn't stop blinking. Joan's nervous system was pushed to the point where simple bodily functions became compromised. During her seven-year contract with Warners, Doris made 17 pictures. After Calamity Jane wrapped in 1953, she had a nervous breakdown. 
One Sunday afternoon on a drive with her third husband, Doris experienced a full-blown panic attack. She couldn't catch her breath. She had trouble breathing. Doris felt like she was dying, but like a good star and wife, she concealed what was happening. She didn't want to disturb her husband at the wheel. For days, Doris struggled for breath. Then she couldn't swallow, nor could she eat or sleep. Her heart thundered in her chest. Then she discovered a lump in her breast. She was sure she was dying. Throughout this episode, Doris's husband, Marty Melcher, believed she wasn't trying hard enough to control it. They were of the Christian science belief. And he told her that her sickness was a product of fear and fear was just a lie treated as though it were truth. Physical pain and illness were a manifestation of spiritual unrest and negative thinking. Marty lectured her about concentrating on the books and the teachings and that her mind could make her well and everything would be fine. Doris didn't need a doctor. She only had to read more Mary Baker Eddy. One day, short of breath, she fainted while she tried to walk across the room. And finally, Marty rang a doctor. The doctor examined Doris and asked for a paper bag. She had passed out because she'd been hyperventilating, he explained. The doctor sent Doris to the hospital for tests. The lump in her breasts turned out to be a benign cyst and was removed. The doctor and a therapist prescribed rest and relaxation techniques, such as floating in a pool. Doris eventually shed the cycle of panic attacks, which were an inevitable result of being overworked by the studio. Surprisingly, fan magazines at the time reported what had happened to Doris. One article in Modern Screen Magazine was written by Jane Carlton, titled Story of the Year, What Really Happened to Doris Day, published in January 1954. It was shockingly devoid of empathy for Doris. It's worth noting that columnists often sided with the studio over individual stars. Although they might spend months or years writing good publicity, once a star caused a delay in production, the barbs came out in column inches. In a company town, gossip columnists usually sided with the moguls and the producers. Jane Carlton told readers that Doris Day delayed work on Lucky Me because after Calamity Jane, she developed cancer phobia. The author makes Doris sound hysterical and falling to pieces when just a little tiny tumor was removed from her breast. The reporter calls a two by four centimeter tumor no big deal, just a tiny tumor. The reporter argued that hardy girls like Doris never become ill from too much work. It's all in her head. The reporter, who had never met Doris, but grew up in the same town so she knows, brings out her best armchair psychiatry. She diagnosed Doris's malady as a product of daddy abandonment issues, which forced her into a career she never really wanted. Doris only wanted to be a good wife and a mother until stardom was thrust upon her. The problem was all in Doris's head, not the inhumane studio schedule. Doris Day was so adroit at creating sunny, resilient characters on screen that it disguised what was going on in her life. 
she had to endure many exploitative and abusive men in order to get what she wanted from her career. When Doris was 15, she and a partner won a Cincinnati dance contest. Doris and the boy, along with their mothers, drove out to Hollywood. The teenagers were accepted in Fanchon and Marco Dance School. It seemed like they might be able to settle out west and try to make good. Doris's mother Alma took them back to Ohio to pack up for a permanent move. While they were there, Doris went to a party with friends. The car she was in was struck by a train in a freak accident. Doris's right leg was completely shattered. She had a long and difficult convalescence. One thing was certain, doctors said, her dance career was over. Doris turned to singing. When she was 16, she began singing with a local band. The band leader, Barney Rapp, hired her after she auditioned with Day After Day. Her family name was a problem, though. Barney told her that Kappelhoff was too long for a marquee, and maybe it sounded too ethnic. He suggested she take Day as a stage name. Doris wasn't crazy about the idea, but she went along with it. Doris made $25 a week for singing with the band until 2 in the morning, but she didn't know that Rapp actually paid her $50 a week. The band's manager pocketed half her salary, taking advantage of an inexperienced teenager. She sang in nightclubs until the wee hours. Al Jordan, a trombone player with the band, courted Doris by giving her a lift home at night. Doris left Rapp's band and worked with a different group headed by Bob Crosby, Bing's younger brother. While singing with Crosby, she caught the attention of Les Brown, who signed Doris for $75 a week to tour with his band. Doris was lonesome on the road. For months, she exchanged letters with Al Jordan. As soon as her tour ended, Al talked her into getting married. After a brief ceremony in City Hall, Doris was a bride at 17 years old. Within 24 hours, the groom revealed his true self. Doris stopped by the theater to thank one of the band members for a wedding present before the gig one night. She kissed the man on the cheek. Al became furious and dragged her back to their hotel. He hit her in the face, threw her into the wall, knocked her into furniture. During the battering, Al shouted abuse at Doris, calling her a whore and a tramp. Al accused Doris of taking the stairs to give the men a chance to look up her dress. He was unhinged. This episode was but the first in a series of attacks by her new husband. Al used a familiar pattern of physical and psychological terror, followed by remorse and pleading, culminating in a pledge of love and devotion. In between jealous rampages, Doris wasn't allowed to work. She had to sit in some fleabag motel and wait for her husband to return. Al's jealousy was not limited to other men. As is often the case with abusers, he became angry when Doris found out she was pregnant. Al demanded she get an abortion. Doris refused, but that didn't keep him from his resolve to get rid of the baby. Al beat her over and over, hoping it would cause a miscarriage. One day, when she was nearly ready to deliver, Al pulled a gun and held it against her stomach. 
Dara sought refuge with her family. After baby Terry was born, she gave in to Al's begging and agreed to try again. If the baby cried during the night, Al would order Doris to let her mother Alma tend to Terry. He was jealous of his own child. Doris finally kicked him out. She began to recover from the traumatic marriage by singing on a local radio programs. But during this time, Al Jordan stalked her. Years later, Al Jordan stopped his car at a traffic light, took out a gun, and blew his brains out. But she didn't really finally escape him until Les Brown invited her to return singing with the band, and she was relieved to get away from her ex-husband. Terry stayed with her grandma, his grandmother. Doris first performed Sentimental, Sentimental Journey on tour with Les Brown and his orchestra. She recorded the song at the start of 1945. It was an instant hit and became the song that was most identified with her career next to the song Que Sera Sera from her outing with Alfred Hitchcock. In 1946, Doris married Dor George Wheedler, another musician. As Hedda Hopper later put it, she was a girl who fell in love without pausing for breath. George's sister was Virginia Wheedler, who'd been that child star in MGM, playing Norma Shearer's daughter in The Women and Katherine Hepburn's sister in The Philadelphia Story. George was a natty dresser and apparently good in bed. He moved them into a small trailer park in a vacant lot in Hollywood. While Doris tried to figure out how to pay the bills, get her son out to stay with her in California, Al Levy, that agent, paid a call. He was an agent with Century Artists who wanted to sign her as a solo act. He also thought she should be thinking about breaking into pictures. After she did a set of club dates in New York, Doris returned to the trailer in Hollywood and found George had cleared out without a forwarding address. He just left a note which gave a lame explanation. She was on her way to becoming a big star. He couldn't handle it, so he left. When Doris built a career in radio, on top of her work in the studio, she had to put up with Bob Hope's relentless sexual harassment. On the program, Hope called her JB, a little pet name that stood for Jut Butt. Hope claimed in Doris's memoir that no one but the band members knew what the initials stood for, but that wasn't true. In the Modern Screen Dime Store Psychology article that I mentioned earlier, the author printed Jut Butt as Hope's nickname for Doris, so it was really common knowledge after all. Doris was also stalked by her agent Al Levy, and one night he tried to rape Doris. She narrowly escaped. Another agent with Century Artist declared he could take her problem, her Al Levy problem, and make it disappear. His name was Marty Melcher. Marty was married to Patty Andrews of the Andrews sisters at the time. But insiders quipped that Marty couldn't dump Patty fast enough once a bigger meal ticket came along. Marty styled himself as a father figure for little Terry and won over her mother. In reality, he was vicious and cruel with Terry and sent him to military school at the first opportunity. As soon as they were married, Marty became the professional Mr. Doris Day. He was her agent manager and later started his own production unit. If you wanted to do business with Doris, it would cost you a $50,000 fee up front to Marty. 
male co-stars steered clear of Doris's husband. Frank Sinatra told Jack Warner he wouldn't do it young at heart unless Warner banned Marty from the, the lot for the duration of production. Rock Hudson and Jim Garner ignored Marty's pitches for bad investment deals like the ones he made for Doris in hotels and oil wells. Marty prevented Doris from spending money on interior design, her great passion. Everything she made was sent over to Jerry Rosenthal, a lawyer who hatched investment schemes based on tax loopholes. The only good thing Marty ever did for Doris was have the decency to die before she lost her home. After he died in 1968, Doris learned she was flat broke. Everything she had worked so hard for was gone. It took years to figure out how Rosenthal scammed Doris Day. He buried everything under mountains of paperwork. Terry basically quit his job as a successful music producer to unravel the financial mess Marty and Jerry had created for Doris. In the end, the judge ruled that Rosenthal had defrauded Doris Day and owed her a sum over $22 million. Doris may have won the victory in court, but it's doubtful she ever received closure on whether Marty was just a dupe or he was in it all along. I might briefly add that Doris's son, Terry, also brought her a lot of grief. As a big music producer, Terry auditioned a newcomer hoping to land a record deal. His name was Charles Manson. When Terry failed to deliver what Manson wanted, he sent his charming family to Terry's house on Cielo Drive. At the time, the house was occupied by Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. The media went into a frenzy about Doris Day's connection to the Manson family murders. Despite the tumultuous relationships with men, Doris Day retained an essential part of herself that lifted her above their lust, greed, jealousy, and hate. Ultimately, she believed in herself, her talent, her gifts, which kept her safe at some level and kept her to survive a series of traumatic nightmares. Thanks for listening. Just a quick note also to remind you that I have a Betrayan for Sassmouth Dames if you would like to subscribe. I'm writing an original story for a podcast serial set in a hair salon during 1933. I'd like to be able to pay the cast, and your patronage helps. Patrons receive exclusive news about the series and upcoming episodes. The following books helped me to write this episode. Doris Day, Her Own Story, by Doris Day and A.E. Hotchner, published in 1976. Doris Day, The Untold Story of the Girl Next Door, by David Kaufman, published in 2008. The Whole Truth and Nothing But, by Hedda Hopper, published in 1962. Michael Cortez, A Life in Film, by Alan K. Rohde, published in 2017. Creating the, the Illusion, A Fashionable History of Hollywood Costume Designers by Jay Jorgensen and Donald L. Scoggins, published in 2015. Join me next time for episode 98 when I talk about Lana Turner and Peyton Place from 1957. Thanks very much.